Hello and welcome to The Hated and the Dead with Tom Lehman. This month marks the 25th anniversary of one of the most important political changes in British history. On September the 11th, 1997, the people of Scotland voted in a referendum to establish their own parliament. 1997 was the culmination of a long struggle for self-government led by a group of people in Scotland, some left-wing, others right, many nondescript. These people, the devolutionists, are the subject of today's episode. Whilst few can, in and of itself, criticise any group's desire for self-government, the matter of devolution, that is to say, the giving of powers to parliaments in Scotland and Wales, has proven highly controversial. In part, this is because devolution represented the biggest constitutional shake-up in the UK for centuries. The British Parliament in Westminster, where Liz Truss this week took part in her first Prime Minister's questions, is by convention supreme. Traditionally, what Westminster says goes not just for England, but for Northern Ireland, Wales and Scotland too. And debates around whether devolution has undermined that supremacy still rage today. More controversially still, though, is the blurred line between self-government for Scotland within the UK and Scottish independence. Whilst most of the people discussed today advocate for Britain staying in the UK but with greater autonomy, the Parliament set up in Edinburgh has been controlled since 2007 by the pro-independence Scottish National Party, currently led by Nicola Sturgeon. Many British commentators argue that the granting of a Parliament to the Scots, far from satisfying demands for self-government, merely gave them a taste for it, leading inevitably to calls for total separation from the UK. Whether that's true is up for debate, but there is little doubt that many people in England have grown tired of the Scots and are now for the first time contemplating English independence. The widely held English perception of Scots as entitled and deluded, and the widely held Scottish perception of the English as arrogant, whilst both mistaken, are tugging at the foundations of the UK, and show few signs of letting up with Nicola Sturgeon now attempting to secure a second referendum on Scottish independence in 2023. My guest for this conversation is a man who can truly claim the title of devolutionist. Lord Jack McConnell served as the First Minister of Scotland, the position now held by Nicola Sturgeon, from 2001 until 2007. Jack is the first former head of government I have had on the podcast, and it was brilliant to speak to him about his own experiences running Scotland in the early days of the Parliament. We discuss the flourishing of the modern Scottish, as opposed to British, identity, the government of Margaret Thatcher as a catalyst for change, the complex interplay between Brexit and Scottish independence, the future of Jack's Labour Party in Scotland, and much more. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to introduce the Scottish Devolutionists. Morning, Jack. Thanks for joining me. How are you? Uh, I am very well. Uh, I uh, am a little bit hoarse after doing a lot of screaming and shouting in the pool in the athletics last night. <laughs> <laughs> Jack, um, we're talking about the Scottish devolution movement and the people that proposed it today. Scotland is is renowned across the world, really, for the robustness of its national character. And it's it's been part of the UK since 1707. Um, that's a long time, but it's been associated with England for much less time than, for instance, Wales is, um, which is where my family come from. And I think even after 1707, the idea of self-governance, which we're talking about today, um, has always been very important for Scottish people. For those who don't know, in what ways has Scottish self-governance and Scotland's kind of own institutions been retained even during the 300-year period since 1707? Well, the key thing in 1707 was, uh, although the then Scots Parliament, which we wouldn't recognise necessarily as a parliament today, but was effectively the decision-making institution, voted to to create the, the, the union with England, uh, the Scottish legal system was retained as a separate uh, entity. 
Um, there were other other aspects to that as well. Uh, Scottish education, for example, was was very different from education in England, still is today in some respects. Um, Scottish church was different. So there were other institutions and and uh, significant aspects of life in Scotland that were distinct and remain so after 1707. But the most important was the retention of a, or, or, of a separate and very distinct legal system. And really that created an, an anomaly that uh, it may have taken nearly 300 years to, uh, to resolve, but it, 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 it created a situation where the laws of Scotland um, that were very specific to Scotland in both civil and criminal law uh, were being made by a parliamentary institution uh, where the members of parliament that represented Scotland um, were in a significant minority. And eventually, at some point, that was going to become uh, a, 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 an anomaly that had to be tackled. So it was the, the, the campaign over the years for um, some form of self-government, autonomy, uh, devolution, whatever you want to call it, in Scotland, home rule, um, had at its core uh, the need to resolve that democratic deficit. And in fact, Malcolm Rifkin, Tory grandee, uh, Malcolm Rifkin, an opponent of devolution at certain times in his career and a, a proponent of devolution at other times in his career, I think was famously quoted as saying that Scotland was the, the only country in the world with its own legal system that didn't have its own democratic legislature to, uh, to make those laws. And, you know, I think that it may, it may have been sustainable for 300 years, but it certainly wasn't sustainable any longer. I want to jump in at a point in your lifetime, Jack, where Scottish devolution sort of became or, or was or was taken to the Scottish people for a vote for the first time. And this was uh, 1979. Yep. Um, this is, a you know, an important moment. There was a, a vote on Scottish devolution. Can you go a bit into the, the context of that vote through the sort of 60s and 70s? What what was the debate surrounding Scottish devolution and what were the issues that, that Scots were rallying around at that point i think let's let's put the the 18th and 19th centuries to one side because that's a different a different context altogether but in the 20th century really from the early decades of the 20th century politics was dominated by by a class divide um and by by obviously from the 20s and 30s onwards by by that significant divide between uh uh in the uk labor and conservative and other countries um similar parties representing particular class interests. And in the aftermath of the Second World War, although that class divide dominated politics, uh, there was also a sense of unity because the the, the United Kingdom had you know, clearly been at the centre and at the forefront of defeating uh, Nazi Germany. And uh, you know, that created a political context that went on right through into the 60s. Um, but by the 1960s, as society was opening up, uh, becoming more transparent, uh, less deferential, I think that was important, uh, then uh, issues of identity became perhaps more important in, in politics. And the idea that there's only one UK identity, uh, I think, started to be challenged. And by the 19, early 1970s, there was a very, there was a growing movement, certainly involving at that time the Liberal Party, uh, some elements of the Labour Party some elements of Scottish society, uh, a minority of, of nationalists, uh, most of whom wanted um, Scotland to, to leave the United Kingdom, but there were a minority of, of nationalists who were also very keen on the idea that, 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 that the devolution would either be a stepping stone or at least would be an adequate compromise for them. Um, and that led to uh, pressure on both Labour and Conservative parties, both of whom started to propose uh, a commitment to devolution. Ted Heath was the first, actually, um, as Tory leader. Um, Harold Wilson then followed in the uh, in in the early seventies, and uh, so by nineteen seventy nine, uh, that 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 pressure resulted in a referendum. But the first time I voted, my very first vote, uh, I was just eighteen, and I uh, I remember the campaign very well. It was a miserable winter campaign. The the vote took place in early March. The uh, the campaign was divided. We had uh, uh, the official. Uh, um, Labour, Yes for Scotland campaign, and we had the Yes for Scotland campaign, um, uh, and they hardly spoke to each other. Uh, and generally, it was uh, you know it was not a it was not a great moment in Scotland's history. And 
there had been a bit of jiggery-pokery, as we would say in Scotland, in, in Westminster, and an amendment uh, by George Cunningham MP was passed, which meant that not only did, did, the, did the referendum have to result in a 50% vote um, in order to uh, uh, for, for, for the case to be won, uh, the... Uh, uh, more than 40% of those eligible to vote um, or those on the electoral register um, which of course included people who were dead people who were on uh, the register twice like students who were perhaps at home and then um, at their at their um, student residence as well uh, were counted twice and therefore uh, made it even harder to, to achieve um, and uh, as a result although a majority voted yes um, it was not a sufficient majority to actually carry the day. So, um, I mean, that was a really big blow to the psychology of Scotland, I think, at the time. And you know, some some great thinkers, um, you know, the, the 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 liberal leader from the sixties and seventies, Joe Grimmond, you know, one or two leading Labour thinkers on this on this on this front, the MP for East Lothian, for example, um, you know, were very prominent. But there were also very prominent campaigners. On the other side of the argument, who believed that any any attempt to dissipate the power of Westminster uh, would be a bad thing for social change, um, and that was an argument that continued into the early nineteen eighties. A tremendous blow for the psychology of the of the pro devolution uh, group, but also I think it was followed by what was in many ways an even greater blow, which was the premiership of, of Margaret Thatcher. Um, Margaret Thatcher is is not a popular politician in Scotland. What was it about Thatcher's leadership style that Scots disliked so much, do you think? Because in a way, I think the 80s now, as we look back on it in an era where Scotland does have its own parliament, is perhaps the time it was It was a sort of tipping point when when many Scots, who, who had perhaps initially not been particularly warm on the idea of a, of a separate parliament, uh, started to think differently. Well, I th- first of all, I think it's quite important to, to recognise that although there was a very definite majority of Scots who were rejecting the changes that were taking place um, under the Thatcher Premiership, um, somewhere between 25 and 30% of Scots continued to vote, uh, vote Conservative. Mm-hmm. So there was, a, there was a minority who, who, who definitely hung in there. But uh, I think for the majority of Scots, there was a feeling that not only were the, the huge industrial changes that were taking place um, having a detrimental impact on Scotland as they were in the north of England and, and Wales and other parts of the country as well uh, the, but that for the first time really um, since the universal franchise um, in the 20th century there was a dictatorial approach to Scotland where um, there was not the seeking of consensus uh, or consent um, for policies applied by the UK government um, and that cert- certainly in public services and in that deindustrialization there was there was a sort of take it or leave it approach that um, definitely rubbed up against the Scottish character and that certainly led to a growth in eventually not not immediately in the early 80s um, the, the, the case for devolution was very much a, a still a minority interest in the early 80s. But during the course of the 1980s, there was a, a, a growing mood amongst the public for greater autonomy, greater self-government in Scotland and, and, and some kind of mechanism, preferably democratic mechanism, that would stop the imposition of policies that people did not want to, to see. Um, she also, I think, significantly changed the mood in the Labour Party. Um, when I was when I first joined the Labour Party in 1980, the young student activist and you know, very strong supporter of of, uh, of Home Rule for Scotland, uh, again it was it was pretty much a minority interest inside the Labour Party, and there were still quite a lot of people who were either um, supportive of devolution but not particularly keen to make it a priority, uh, or uh, right. who were um, or who were. Uh, still reluctant and, and saw it as a, um, a move away from the importance of class politics. And the 1980s certainly changed that atmosphere inside the Labour Party and the mood inside the Labour Party shifted quite significantly. And that was to be decisive really in the 90s as the yeah. actuality of a parliament got closer. You, as you've just said, Jack, are a, a Labour politician. 
and you were a Labour member during the 1980s. If we think about the 90s, Margaret Thatcher left power in 1990, but obviously the Tories were still in power. Um, But at that time, Labour had a very impressive crop of Scottish politicians, Robin Cook, Gordon Brown, the leader between 92 and 94, John Smith. Um, Tony Blair was born in Scotland, educated in Scotland, although I'm sure a few Scots would probably dispute whether he's actually Scottish. Um, But I think the person who's most closely associated with devolution um, is Donald Dewar. Um, When did you first meet Donald Dewar? Well, I, I first um, I first met him in, er, in the in the early eighties, um, but was aware of him uh, before before that. He he himself had been one of those who had been a prominent advocate of Labour shifting its policy in the nineteen seventies, uh, and then of, he had uh, himself then stood in a very famous by election in the late nineteen seventies uh, in Glasgow Gascadden where. Um, there seemed to be a rising level of support for the SNP, and uh, uh, the then Callaghan government was in da- was in danger in, in Parliament, uh, with a very slim uh, majority at times, a minority um, of MPs, and uh, Donald, along with George Robertson, um, who was also part of that group of uh, Scots who went on to be in the first Blair cabinet in nineteen ninety seven, uh, both of them won by elections. Uh, against what seemed to be the drift towards the SNP in the late 1970s, and both were prominent pro-devolutionists. Uh, Donald, in particular, um, uh, you know, then became uh, uh, eventually Shadow Secretary of State for Scotland in the in the opposition years. And one of his most significant decisions, which I think did uh, show his willingness um, to think outside the box, which is not was well, not always the case for Labour politicians back then, uh, he. Uh, Oh now, uh, he, he responded positively. He responded positively to the uh, to the proposal for a Scottish constitutional convention. So I was involved in a, in a campaign uh, called the, the Campaign for the Scottish Parliament. They established a commission to look at the idea of a constitutional convention that might make the democratic demand for Scotland on a cross party basis and create the momentum that would be that would eventually shift uh, whoever was in power in Westminster to, to, to make to make the right decision. And Labour faced a huge decision about whether it should join this convention or not. We were not, as a party, particularly good at working on a cross-party basis back in those days, uh, uh, as we had seen in the 79 referendum campaign. But Donald took the very brave um, and visionary decision to to join this convention uh, and, if, and essentially to go in and actually lead the convention towards a consensus proposal for a parliament that would that, that would ultimately win the support of the people. And although he himself moved out of the position of Shadow Scottish Secretary and wasn't closely involved in the convention in the mid-90s, um, that initial decision, which changed the way that Labour approached the constitutional question, made it less of a partisan party issue and much more of a principled issue uh, that was hugely significant, and by '97, uh, we then had a convention scheme. That convention, which I was honoured to be a be part of, um, that convention in '95 agreed a consensus proposal. Civic society, Liberal Democrats, Labour, um, the Nationalists stood to one side. They weren't particularly interested because um, we were looking for home rule inside the United Kingdom. Um, and by '95, we had a scheme. Um, and then, of course, uh, Blair uh, famously decided that that should be put to the people before it was put to Parliament. And, and the referendum of September 1997 became the iconic moment of the Scottish people speaking uh, very clearly uh, in favour of this proposal. And uh, the powers that be, not not just MPs, but much more importantly, the House of Lords, which could be a real block on this, uh, were then forced to follow because the referendum had spoken. Yeah, indeed, and, and this eleventh uh, uh, of September ninety-seven vote is, uh, is is the reason why we're speaking about this today. Ago, yeah. Twenty-five years ago this year, if you think about the the when the Parliament was created, Dewar obviously became the first Minister of Scotland, the first first Minister. If you look at his time in power, he very sadly died in two thousand, so he wasn't first minister for very long. But what do you think he saw his mission as? What do you what do you think he wanted to use the parliament or the assembly 
to do? Well, I think there were two aspects to, to Donald's leadership at that time. He wanted to create an institution that would become part of the firmament, um, not just of Scotland, obviously, but also of, of, of the UK. He made a critical decision, supported by, by Prime Minister Blair in '97, just before the referendum, uh, between the general election and the referendum in, in the summer of '97, where until then we had been talking about devolving certain powers. We had a list, you know, the convention proposal had a, a sort of almost like an appendix that had a list of all the, the different areas education, civil law, criminal law, you know, so health, agriculture, and so on, um, that would all be devolved. But instead of creating legislation that, 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 that enacted that list and devolved them to the Scottish Parliament, um, the legislation that was proposed and was backed in the referendum of 97 created a, a list of powers that were reserved to Westminster. So it turned it all on its head. And uh, instead of a list that could perhaps be tinkered with over the years, the idea that anything was devolved that, that was not reserved was a much more powerful way to create a stable and, um, and and functioning democratic institution. So that was a hugely important decision. It was it was made in the, in, in the early summer of, of 97, and it, it then created a framework around which you could create, build the parliament from 99 uh, onwards in a stable fashion. And I think to today, despite all the politics that's gone on, the institution itself has been relatively stable through the last uh, the last 23 years partly as a result of that decision but the uh, uh the other thing that, that that drove Donald Dewar was a passionate commitment to social justice and to the parliament actually having a uh, a function it wasn't just an institution it wasn't going to be a white elephant it was going to be a parliament that passed laws and made a difference and changed the lives of Scots particularly those Scots who had the who had the rough end of the deal and he, you know, he made that very clear from the very beginning. The very first speeches, the first cabinet that he chaired, that I was finance minister in, you know, was set on that mission. Um, and uh, when he died in 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 the autumn of of two thousand, one of the reasons I think that there was a huge outpouring of of grief across Scotland and across the political spectrum uh, was that people saw in him not just a figurehead who had. Uh, helped take the campaign for a parliament into the creation of an actual institution, but um, also somebody who had cared passionately and deeply about what you do with that parliament, um, that it wasn't just there for politicians, it was there for the people. You became First Minister of Scotland in 2001, Jack. You were there for, I think, six years until 2007. This is obviously quite a long period. But I think the one of the things that you'd have to pull out of that time in office is is the circumstances in which your your time as first minister ended, which was the rise of the uh, Scottish National Party's government, which has been in power uh, ever since. Th this is where the the sort of line between support for self government in Scotland and support for independence sort of becomes a little bit blurred. Um, when you were first minister, did you? sense a turning of the tides away from the union well there had been um and that even in my adult lifetime uh, i mean there were there were other instances back in the uh, in the late 60s and the mid 70s before i was um even active as in, in youth and student politics but in my even in my adult lifetime there had been moments um in the early 90s for example um there was, a, there was a rise in support for both independence and for the Scottish National Party as a party. Um, between 97 and 99, uh, in the early two years of the Labour government, uh, there were moments when people thought that Labour might lose the first Scottish Parliament election in 99. So there had always been a, sort of a bit of an ebb and flow. But that became a more, um, a, a, a more distinctive uh, shift in opinion, um, definitely, uh, in those first eight years of the of, of the Parliament. I think it was partly because the SNP became the opposition in the Parliament. So the collapse of the Conservatives in Scotland, which had happened in 97, 
meant that I think at one point they were the fourth party in the Scottish Parliament, despite being the opposition at Westminster. Uh, so it, Scottish politics became much less a Labour-Conservative battle uh, and became a Labour-SNP battle. Uh, and that So that changed the mood to some extent. So if there was going to be a dip in Labour support, the SNP were going to be the beneficiaries. They were the they were the the the, the, the official opposition. I think it was partly um, the resources that the Parliament threw up for them as well, but it was also, uh, I think, consequence of a bit of detachment from the UK government to the new uh, devolved uh, nation. I think that UK government ministers the UK government as a whole, didn't really know how to deal with this new situation where there were certain areas of policy they couldn't get involved in anymore. I mean, we were, we were wholly autonomous in the, in the areas that we were responsible for. And by and large, although people occasionally expressed opinions, we never, never, we never really directly interfered with uh, um, in, 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 in the work that we were doing. But there were still huge areas of policy that were reserved to Westminster. Um, and to and to the UK government and ministers, I think, generally struggled to work out what that meant. You know, could they come to Scotland? Could they engage with Scottish civil society? Could they, um, you know, could they come and consult? You know, or, or advocate, implement policies in Scotland in the areas that they were uh, for which they were responsible, and it, and it, it became in that detachment. I think started to question whether the UK government was still relevant in Scotland. And this is still a problem today, um, that uh, you speak to young people in Scotland today and apart from the chaos in the UK government that doesn't help uh, the case for uh, shared sovereignty of the UK, they, they, they question, you know, wh what is the purpose of a UK government for them as young Scots uh, in, their, in, their, in their daily lives? And I think that question, you know, is still one that particularly the two main parties in the UK, or perhaps all three main parties in the UK, have never really um, faced up to and answered. And uh, I think if we're, we're going to continue to be in this situation where Scotland is deeply split uh, between those who believe in staying in the UK and those who believe in leaving, um, until that question is answered. And that started back then. It was, a, it was, it was yeah. almost... I remember speaking to certain ministers. They was they were almost frightened to cross the border to engage because they didn't know how to handle it, um, and there wasn't a concerted effort. Uh, and I think, my, you know, if I look back on that time, there was there was a, a really interesting committee that um, Tony Blair set up to deal with European issues in the UK government at that time, um, which where ministers from every department would meet on a regular basis and discuss the 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 UK's strategy of intervening in Europe. And I wish they had done the same thing for engaging with the devolved nations. Respectfully, you know, showing me and Rodney Morgan in Wales proper respect and, and our ministers proper respect and, 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 and respecting the autonomy that we had. But at the same time, in their own departments and their own responsibilities uh, across the piece, perhaps giving a lot more thought to the way in which they continue to engage in areas like immigration and, you know, defence and, uh, and and so on, that were uh, social security, that were all still reserved to uh, to Westminster. Among some people in England, there's a perception that devolution in Scotland and the creation of the Parliament has sort of stoked independence. There was a, a, a sort of belief before devolution that um, in order to quell nationalist sentiment in Scotland there needed to be a sort of compromise clearly uh, Scotland being ruled directly from Westminster with no sort of in between hadn't worked and so there needed to be the creation of this sort of middle institution between local government in Scotland and Westminster government what do you think of that do you do you think that you can draw a direct line between the creation of the parliament and an increase in in independent in, in sort of support for independence I always thought it was a mistake for anybody to use that as the justification. Absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, I think that was. If we go back to the very my very first answer in this interview, you know, the the the, the, the key thing here was that Scotland had a separate civil and, and criminal law, 
that the laws that were passed in Scotland should be made by the democratically elected representatives of the Scots. And I think that that principle was not always understood by even pro-devolution prominent um, UK politicians. Um, not always understood by prominent Scottish politicians, I have to say as well. But I... Uh, uh, and I, th I think that led to this idea that, you know, you could create a parliament and that would just keep everybody happy. But politics doesn't work like that, and it certainly doesn't work like that in the 21st century. And I think if you see the creation of the Scottish parliament as part of, yes, an, an increased sense of national identity in Scotland. I mean, my generation, um, you know, I think in the 1970s as teenagers, we were much more aware of our Scottishness than previous generations had been. And, and that was partly the aftermath of the Second World War. It was partly the class divide that was much more dominant in society until the 1960s. It was all sorts of reasons for that, um, a sense of Britishness. But increasingly, my generation in the 1970s saw Scottishness as being more important than Britishness. And uh, I don't think polit UK politics... Um, and, and to some extent, for a while, Scottish politics really understood that shift. Um, and we now see this all over the world. I mean, this is, I'm engaged in, um, not, not, nothing's identical, but similar, you know, similar uh, clashes of identity that, was, you know, that, that demand political change in, in different parts of the world. And we now see this everywhere, where people are, uh, they're not accepting uh, the old norms um, and, in, and, in, and in the UK, that came out of the 1960s, changes in society, uh, uh, people's sense of personal identity, less deference, uh, uh, all these different factors. Um, and devolution was part of that. If you see devolution as part of that, home rule as part of that, then you understand it better, I think, rather than just seeing it as some sort of compromise in order to shut up the Scots. So I think that, and I think that was part of the problem. So after after 99... Some people who might have seen it as a compromise that would keep the Scots happy disengaged rather than um, engaged. Doubling down. And what you need to do, what you needed to do was engage and prove that the UK was still worth having. Um, and David Cameron, I, I, I'm sorry to switch years here, but David Cameron made ex made an even worse example of this in, 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 in 2014 when in the morning after the 2014 referendum, Instead of going to Scotland and saying, you know, it's it's good to have you back, you know, we're we're, please, we're we're going to make the UK work better for everybody, which is what his message should have been the next morning. Uh, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to rest on our laurels here. We're not going to say, right, okay, the Scots have voted to stay, so that's fine. He said, you know, the completely wrong thing. He said, right, okay, that's Scotland done. Now we're going to fix England, and it was catastrophic. Uh, you know, completely galvanised all those who had. Um, who had voted for uh, leaving the UK the day before. Um, and to this day, almost none of them have changed their mind because um, they got the signal. They're not stupid. Uh, and until somebody gives them the signal that uh, the UK is going to change to, to, to reflect that sentiment of a disengagement, uh, then that, that divide that exists in Scotland is not going to change. It's interesting that you, that you brought up England there. I grew up in England, the southwest of England, and it. I think post devolution in Scotland and Wales, um, it's become clear to many people that political representation in the UK is very, very unequal. So I grew up in the southwest of England, where we have local government, but we don't have this kind of you know regional parliament. Um, we just have direct rule from Westminster. Obviously, the southwest of England isn't a country in the same way as Scotland, but but the point is that there's a, a sort of lack of uh, there's a, there's an inequality of representation, and I think that um, over that time, you've also seen the uh, emergence of campaigns like English Votes for English Laws, where English people see Scottish MPs voting on on legislation that affects English people, but it but not the other way around exactly because of because of the the Parliament. Do you think that? Even if even if you think that the Parliament itself hasn't exactly stoked Scottish uh, nationalism, do you think it stoked English nationalism? Um, I think it, I think it, it will have given people some people 
you know, a, 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 a grievance to focus on, um, or something positive, you know, to, to, to reflect. I think I am, I have always been quite surprised by how much of a minority interest that is in England. Uh, you know, I, I, I did think in the aftermath of the creation of, of the of the Scottish Parliament, uh, the Welsh Assembly, which then became the Welsh Parliament and, and, and the Northern Irish Assembly, that there would be a growing demand in England um, for that the Englishness of some laws to be better reflected in, in the way Parliament made its decisions uh, and potentially also for, uh, for, for stronger uh, decentralisation to certain English regions. And I've been surprised that that's not had not not become more of an issue. <clears throat> um, I, but uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, I mean, even in both Scotland and England, you would think that these issues, you know, would have uh, in certain circumstances would have even more traction than they do. Even in Scotland, you know, the current the chaos in the UK government for the last six years, <laughs> and yet still, the majority of Scots want to stay. <laughs> Um, you know, sometimes it's a surprise. You know, I mean, it's uh, and and I think in England, I've, I I do find it quite surprising that people still have this loyalty to these to these institutions. That to me, that creates a responsibility on the part of those in them. Um, that you know, they need to they need they need to reflect, go back and reflect the principles. Um, even if there's not a huge public demand for change in England, I think leading politicians in England have a responsibility to think through the principles of governance and come up with proposals that 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 help you know de help deliver social change but also create the most transparent and effective and accountable democracy that we can have and uh, we're a long way away from that at the moment I think the Scots voted to stay in the union mm. in 2014 um I think a large part of that vote was the assumption that Britain would stay in the European Union and by extension Scotland would stay in the European Union as well as in the the union of the of, of the of the British Isles. Mm -hmm. Obviously that didn't turn out to be the case because Britain has now left the European Union um in spite of the fact of of Scotland voting about 60-40 which is you know 40% of Scots voted to leave it's worth remembering but, but 60% voted to stay. Um, do you think, has Brexit given you pause for thought, Jack, about your support for Scotland remaining in the UK? Because it, the future for your country does increasingly look like a choice between being in the UK and outside the EU or being outside the UK and inside the EU. I think about these things all the time. I always have. I have really, I suppose, since I was... 15, 16, uh, and I try and challenge my own views constantly um, and try and come back to first principles all the time if I can. Uh, uh, I think these are very interesting circumstances in which there might be a future vote. I, I mean, I think it's some way off, but uh, let's... let's um, uh, speculate that there could be a vote again at some point, you know, in, in this generation. Um, and I think, uh, while at first glance it looks like the Brexit vote created the circumstances where Scots might be more likely to vote for uh, for leaving the UK, um, I think there are two factors in that 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 really cause difficulty for uh, for nationalists and. I'm not sure that they have really faced up to either of those yet. Um, one of one of them is that you know the sort of chaos that's been created by Brexit um, could be pretty small beer uh, compared to the chaos that might be created by the breakup of the UK. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's one factor that I think might be at the back of people's minds and why opinion hasn't shifted very much despite the Brexit vote. But also when we get into an actual um, referendum campaign or the, the, a debate about remaining in the UK or leaving the UK, the choice is going to be not a smooth transition. Uh, I, th I thought in 2014 the Nationalists almost had a sort of perfect storm um, in their favour. I predicted, I predicted a close result way in advance of the result becoming close. Um, 
they had an unpopular Conservative Liberal government, um, four years of austerity, six years of economic difficulties from the 2008 crash onwards, um, a relatively disorganised and you know not particularly popular Labour Party. Uh, um, uh, and charismatic politicians, right? You know, uh, Sturgeon, strong, Salmon. Very, very strong leaders of the SNP um, and the European Union. And within the European Union, the potential for Scotland and, Scotland and the rest of the UK to separate, but do so in a relatively stable way without very much changing, um, was actually quite real. Uh, and so I thought the 2014 referendum almost created the perfect storm for for nationalism to, to, to benefit. I think a future referendum is going to be much more of a challenge for them because in order to rejoin the European Union, Scotland would have to leave the UK. Scotland leaves the UK and rejoins the European Union. We may not have any border with the European Union, but we are going to have a border with England, Wales and Northern Ireland. And that's our biggest market. It's about 10 times, I think, the size of the market with the rest of the EU. So um, all those arguments against Brexit become arguments against uh, against um, Scotland leaving the UK. And I think that's, a, in, in terms of, you can imagine TV debates, major debates taking place during, during the campaign. I think the momentum would be, actually would probably be with the pro-UK side rather than, as in 2014, the momentum was with uh, those who could see a relatively smooth transition to more autonomy for Scotland. If you look at Scottish politics now, um, the SNP have been in power for 15 years, which is yep. longer than the Conservative government in Westminster have been in power. Yep. They're on to their second First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon. Yep. She is currently trying to to obtain the type of vote that you have just described, a second referendum on independence. It, it clearly, among many people in Scotland, the nationalist sentiment is very strong, and quite and you know, it, it's it. There's there's a there's a fervor there. Where's the fervor for staying in? <laughs> you know, who who is making, in your opinion, Jack, a really strong, attractive energetic case for staying in and for sort of you know for re-energizing the self-government side of this argument rather than the independent side that is a tough question i think that that is probably the most significant challenge on the non-nationalist side of the uh, of the of the, of the scottish uh, divide um i mean i really don't want to be in a situation where um, Scotland decides to remain again just because of fear or because you know the case has not been made uh, to, to 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 leave the UK. There needs to be, there can be, there should be, um, you know, a positive case made in the modern world for for sharing sovereignty. And I, you know, I, I think if um, a really good example of what's wrong with Scottish politics at the moment is the Scottish Green Party, you know, who have just announced this summer that the next general election in Scotland for them will be will be all about whether or not there can be a second um, independence referendum. We've got a climate crisis, an emergency <laughs> that uh, not 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 just Green parties, but you know, politicians, businesses. Uh, community groups, you know, particularly in the global south, all over the world, um, are crying out for action on, and the Green Party in Scotland don't want that climate crisis to be the number one issue at the next uh, in the next general election. And if you want an example of just how bad Scottish politics is at the moment, then there you have it. And um, I don't think on the other side of the argument against uh, against leaving the UK, people have constructed that positive case. Um, enough. And for me, you know, the sharing of power in the UK, first of all, makes sense because we share some islands and we share history and tradition and language and all sorts of uh, other elements. But it also makes sense in the modern world because you, you, you make the best decisions and you create the best change um, by, by working together. And uh, to me, strong, autonomous 
home rule devolution, whatever you want to call it, um, inside the UK, but with a UK government uh, that can pull all that together on, you know, on the, in the international arena, but nationally as well, uh, tackling climate, the, the, the climate crisis, uh, uh, dealing with social inequalities, um, building a strong economy that can compete in the modern 21st century, uh, and so on. These are, these to me, these are things that um, that really matter to people, and I think we we will fail in that challenge. We will certainly fail to put this issue to bed um, for a generation, unless we find a way of articulating that positive case um, for the autonomous power that we have, uh, but also the shared power that we can use at the UK level for the better of all, and. Um, you know, I live in I live in hope that at some point somebody's going to make uh, going to stand up and make that case. It may well be that it's not politicians that do that, but that other people who care deeply about our country find their voice uh, and uh, uh, are able to articulate that better than any politicians could. And maybe that's maybe that's the way forward. I think there there are many criticisms of of that can be levied at the SNP government and at the SNP as a political party. One of the main ones is that, in a sense, I think, not among all of all of the people in the party or all of its politicians, but among some of them, they, they have sensed that there's an incentive for them to make sure that the devolution settlement, as it currently stands, does not work very well, to ensure that there's a certain dysfunction, because dysfunction within the current system plays into the narrative that nationalism and independence is the only way forward. To bring this back to you, Jack, just to finish, um, I think Labour is probably still the only party in Scotland capable of actually making a proper self-governance devolution settlement work. I don't, you know, because the Tories are massively unpopular in the in the central belt of Scotland and, and Labour are not in the same way. How can Labour get back to a position in Scotland, do you think, where it, it's, it's capable of actually governing for the country? Well, it needs to articulate an ambitious vision for the uh, uh, for the country. Ultimately, um, you need to win public support to win elections. You need to have a good organisation. You need to have charismatic individuals who can persuade people. You need to have the the effort and the creativity that helps expose the deficiencies in the way that your opponents are governing. And my God, there are many of them in the. In, in Scotland today, but you also need to set out an, a, a more ambitious vision for the country than your opponents. Uh, because that's how you, ultimately, that's how you win elections. Uh, if you look back to to Cameron in, in 2010 or Blair in 97, Thatcher in 79, you know, people were voting for, ultimately voting for a positive vision. They weren't just voting against the, the government that they were voting out. And I think that that has been one of the challenges for the Scottish Labour Party over the last uh, over the last fifteen years. I think there is some hope on that front. I think the current leader in Asawar is relatively young. Um, certainly, you know, modern Scot, um, who I think cares deeply about the country and 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 has a fresh approach to policy. And what he, I think, and his team need to do is. They need to you know, look at where they want to take Scotland. People are not going to vote for leaders who just want know where they want to take the party. They they will vote for leaders uh, that they believe know um, what they want to do with the country. And I think that's Anasis' uh, uh, number one challenge is to set out a vision to be first minister of Scotland and to lead the country. Um, it's all very well being leader of the Labour Party. But you need to want to actually run the country. That's the whole purpose. I never wanted to be just leader of the Labour Party. I wanted to be first minister of Scotland. Uh, I wanted to change Scotland. Um, spent my spent my thirties and my forties changing the Labour Party. So my my twenties and my thirties changing the Labour Party. But I always wanted in my forties to change Scotland. And uh, um, you have to have that passion, and then you have to demonstrate it. Uh, and I remember the arguments round about and behind the scenes round about the two thousand and three election. So about eighteen months after I became first minister, we faced quite difficult, you know, first Scottish Parliament election at the end of the first term, and I was very conscious that you know, particularly people who who come into power 
between elections. It's quite difficult to defend that position and to win, win the subsequent election, as many people have found over the years, uh, um, not least Gordon Brown, uh, obviously, in, in 2010. Uh, and I, I, in the 2003 election, there were many in the party who wanted to spend the whole election campaign defending what we'd done between 99 and 2003 in the Scottish Parliament. And I, I had to keep saying, no, this election is about what you do between 2003 and 2007. That first bit just gives you a bit of credibility, but you've got to say what you've got to do next. Um, and I think that's Anassi's challenge, you know, to set out what how Labour would change Scotland, how he would lead Scotland, not how he would lead the Labour Party. And if he can do that, then he can become a formidable challenger for uh, Nicola Sturgeon or whoever replaces her. Jack, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed that. Um in the sort of run up to uh, the twenty fifth anniversary of the of the Parliament, you, you, what can where can people go to sort of uh, read more of your stuff and and uh, what are you sort of involved in now in in Scotland or uh, further afield if there's anything you want to draw people's attention to? Well, one of the things that I am involved in is 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 trying to support those who are creating similar democratic institutions uh, else, elsewhere in the world. So, for example, in the Philippines, I've been involved for the last eight years in supporting former combatants in the South uh, who have, as part of a peace deal with the Filipino government, uh, the creation of an autonomous parliament for their region, uh, the Bangsamoro region, based around a stronger uh, Muslim identity than the Catholic identity of the Philippines. Um, and the you know, they are combatants, they're not experienced politicians. Um, and I've been working with them over the over those years to help them create a parliament that, that works well and, and that they can then use to change the lives of people locally. And, and, you know, I'm involved in other similar examples elsewhere in the world. All around the world, that challenge between the majority and the minority is at the heart of almost every conflict. Even in Ukraine at the moment, you know, the Russian minority in the East gives Putin an excuse to, to go in and invade. And... I think dealing with those issues of majority and minority identities uh, around the world is the single biggest conflict prevention issue of our of our of our, our time, and uh, I'm doing what I can to help with that. So um, I, you know, I feel deeply honoured and uh, and and happy to have served as first minister of Scotland. But I want to use that uh, when I finished. I was still in my forties, and I wanted to to go and use it positively. And I've found routes in which in, in which to to make that happen. Jack, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Hated and the Dead. If you've enjoyed this podcast, follow it on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and, for good measure, leave us a review. You can also follow The Hated and the Dead on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, so you never miss new content.